Uh, right, so let's crack get cracking. Episode episode thirty. Really, really pleased to invite uh, our, our colleague and friend, uh, Doctor Seth O'Neill. First time I've spoken to him since he's completed his PhD. Actually, it felt like he was doing it forever. I'm sure it felt like it for him as well. PhD oh, yeah. in Achilles. <laughs> a PhD in Achilles tendinopathy, uh, physiotherapist, private practitioner, uh, university lecturer at, at Leicester. Uh, he's got it all going on, pr- lots of teaching, lecturing all around the world. Don't know how he has time for it all. So thank you so much for sparing us an hour to, to, to talk to us about Achilles, Achilles tendinopathy um, or Something Achilles tendonitis, bringing a yeah, yeah, bringing us straight into uh, the opening, the opening question, which is probably the one you get asked the most, which is terminology, tendinopathy, tendonitis. Um, given our current knowledge, our current understanding, sort of at a cellular level, uh, inflammation versus degeneration, etc. A bit, a bit like the arguments and discussions we have around plantar fasciitis. Um, what's the current best uh, terminology? What's the current understanding regarding inflammation slash degeneration? Yeah, um, tricky debate. It depends which. There's two camps really, and I think what happens on certainly social media is it gets dichotomized into it's either degeneration only, or it's uh, inflammation only. And of course, like most arguments, the truth's not at either end of the spectrum. The truth's somewhere in the middle. That it, it's largely a degenerative process, but it has inflammatory chemicals involved within that process because it's a, a cellular process that's active. It's not just this quiet wearing out of tissue. It's an active process. And as part of that, there's certain cytokines that are released that trigger cells to respond in a certain way. So tenocytes in this um, sort of instance, and they respond by doing inappropriate things like producing the wrong type of uh, protein glycans and the wrong type of um, glucosaminoglycans, the uh, water loving chemicals within uh, tendons that then suck in moisture and you end up with your edematous tendons and um, those become structurally weaker as a process. So it's neither, um, but it's both, um, if that makes sense. Uh, it's not like inflammation we learn about at university when we do our physio courses, podiatry courses. Um, so it's not prostaglandin-driven inflammation, as far as we can tell. It's more of a failed healing process. And there's been some recent publications um, sort of looking at that. Um, and one of them was a, a recent one in uh, British Journal of Sports Med, which is uh, a biggie. So from a scientist's perspective, it definitely involves inflammation. From a clinician's perspective, I don't think it's always that useful to consider it as a purely inflammatory process because the effect on patients is often detrimental. If you ask the patients when they're in front of you, what do you think is wrong? I've got an inflamed tendon. What should you do with that inflamed tendon? I should rest it until it's better. Okay, that's the flaw. So we can educate them and still use inflammation. That's not a problem. But I'll tend to talk about degeneration with an active process going on. Um, It's just my bias with it, really. Um, I don't think it matters too much exactly how we go with it um i'll just share a quick slide just to show you sort of uh, one of the sort of discussions we've had recently on it and it's really just looking at sort of um here we go if it should uh, come up oh it's gone for the wrong one always good when they go for the wrong one um so uh, always good when everything goes wrong as well there you go so you've got degeneration or inflammation and, and there's evidence for both components um, but like I said, the inflammation is not proper prostaglandin-driven inflammation. It involves certain cells that are, are active, and they're active in remodeling tissue and getting rid of damaged tissue. So where do we tie that up? 
Um, but have a read of the Dakin paper, BGSM this year, which is the one on the right-hand side of the screen there. It's a top paper, slightly complex with uh, how it looks like for science. Super. That so just to clarify, yeah, it does beautifully, beautifully. Just to clarify, Seth, in your, in your medical notes, ten, tendinopathy is what you write? Absolutely. I'd write down tendinopathy, yeah. Um, so tendinopathy is the correct term. Um, tendinopathy, opathy means a problem with the tissue. So you could have a neuropathy, um, and myopathy, any other sort of opathy you want. It, it, really what we're talking about is a problem with the tendon. Therefore, it is tendinopathy, describes pain and disability related to a tendon. And then whether it's inflammatory or degenerative could really only be determined by histology. So you'd have to take a sample and analyze it in the lab. And of all the old studies that have been done, they all show degeneration. New modern advancements in inflammatory markers and inflammatory cells have allowed various inflammatory components to be identified in recent studies. And that's part of the reason we see this difference with it as well. Super, great. Um, we'll move on then. So a question came in, which I, I really like, and it was, can you ask Seth about his assessment of Achilles tendinopathy? But what I'm going to do, I hope the person who asked this question doesn't mind too much, is I'm actually going to slightly change that question um, to what does your uh, assessment of posterior ankle pain look like? Because I'm sure it's the same for you as it is for all of us in that a lot of people that come in and they say, I've got an Achilles tendon problem, yeah. doesn't always turn out to be an Achilles tendon problem. So I, give, I think if we widen this, this question, it gives us a chance to talk about differentials. So someone presents with posterior ankle pain. What, what sort of, we're sitting in clinic with you. What can we expect to see while you're assessing that? Uh, a lot of talking, to be honest. Um, huge amounts of subjective examination that the, the key really is in the subjective. Um, so I'd spend a long time finding out how it started, how it triggered, um, how the behavior of the pain's been since it started, um, what activities flare it up, which activities might settle it, um, really primarily to see if it's got a typical behavior of a tendon, um, because that would start to normally set alarm bells ringing. Um, if it doesn't have the typical behavioral pattern of um, increasing stress on the tendon, something like walking hurts after a long period, running hurts a bit more, and then hopping might hurt even more in some instances or more quickly. So we're looking for that primarily to start with. Um, and then what we're looking for is um, the site of symptoms being one of the best indicators. So the most sensitive um, specific test that exists is where the pain is. So you ask the patient to point to the pain. If they point to their Achilles or if they squeeze the Achilles and, and that's their indication, then it's a, a good chance it will be the Achilles. Um, if they point near the Achilles into Kager's triangle, into sort of tip post, into perineal tendons, then we need to be considering other options. Um, so realistically, yeah, the initial presentation of where the symptoms are during your subjective is the critical bit. And then during the objective, it's very simple. It'll be a case of clearing the ankle joint, um, active and passive movements of the ankle joint involving some combined movements to try and squash various aspects. The particular things that will mimic Achilles problems that really stand out and are the more common entities that I'll see will be ostrigonum, 
um, or posterior impingement of the ankle, whatever you want to term it as um, accessory soleus, but they're rare. They're not very common at all. And they'll cause sometimes uh, visible swelling in the cagus triangle area um, or several nerve um, issues as well. Um, there's a few others like tip post and perineal tendon sort of disorders or subtalar joint disorders for insertional and calcaneal stress fractures. Um, but the pain's normally further around the side. Um, I've had a couple of interesting cases recently of that, where there's a lady who had actually had led a shockwave therapy done on her Achilles for an insertional tendinopathy. And when she came to see me, she said, my pain's still the same. Um, but the consultant said, it's all better now on the scan. And um, her symptoms were blatantly around the calcaneum and nothing to do with the Achilles and never had been. And it seemed to be sort of sort of tailor joint really that was a symptomatic bit and sent her back for uh, MRI and uh, it showed some tailor joint changes um, that seemed to be in keeping with her symptoms. So symptoms tend to stay specific is one of the big things. If the symptoms are widespread, I don't see widespread foot pain. Um, and one of the arguments with a lot of the pain scientists is, is pain becomes widespread and sensitized when you've got a long-term musculoskeletal condition like back pain. Um, we just don't see it in the foot and ankle. The pain stays specific to often where the structure is that may be involved. Um, it doesn't seem to refer unless they develop CRIPS, um, say chronic regional pain syndrome or pseudex atrophy, whatever we want to term it as. Um, so one of the big markers is really isolated pain and the pain will be pretty much easy to replicate when you push on that tissue, stretch that tissue or um, load that tissue. Um, so my normal examination, if it looks like the Achilles when we've done that, would involve London Hospital test, um, which I can go through if you want. Painful arc sign of the Achilles to differentiate between paratine and, and the um, actual main tendon itself. Um, and then I'd always do a straight leg raise with a sural nerve and a tibial nerve bias to exclude them because they're really hard sometimes to differentiate. So I'd always test it. And then it would be um, calf capacity testing. So I'd always use in the clinic strength testing. Um, obviously at the university, we've got some fancy gear to do it, but in the clinic we use um, a Nintendo Wii um, mapped up to Physiometer software. So it's a Danish um, sort of software company linked to our Copenhagen U University, I think it is. Um, and they've developed it, um, or Alberg University. I get the right university where they developed it, otherwise I'll be in trouble. And we'd always measure strength because obviously my PhD data was on calf strength and it's massively down in injured Achilles folk versus healthy controls for, based on our data. So I'd always ascertain what it is to show the patient what we need to do and why we need to do it. Um, and I would probably scan them if I've got the scanner with me as well. Um, but wouldn't be everybody getting scanned. Uh, we don't need to scan everybody, but we should be suspicious in cases where they're not responding to normal interventions um, and not improving. The only other things I'd add in is my differentials. Uh, if we decide it's a, a tendon that's sore, uh, the Achilles that saw itself is what's wrong with the Achilles. So paratenin, mid-portion Achilles tendinopathy, insertional Achilles tendinopathy, or the potential for a variety of splits and tears that can occur within the tendon or some of the related tissue like the fascia crora. Um, and they're difficult to diagnose without um, imaging. Um, so if they were suspected, um, then we might want to move on to other imaging. And I'd only be suspicious of those if the onset was sudden. So person walking along or running along, sudden onset of pain, I consider that a tear is a strong possibility. 
Um, and they seem to, in our experience, do um, less well with heavy loading initially. We have to be a bit more cautious. So. Beautiful. Perfect. Um, I mean, as with previous guests and previous episodes, regardless of what we're talking about, it generally comes down to history, 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 and then physical. So before you even reach for, like you say, the, the imaging um the things that the patients come in expecting you're pretty much 90% of the way there in your mind, at least already a question yeah. that you touched on it there, but a question that came in was about imaging. So um, I think the main question was what and when, so what kind of imaging and when should we do it? You sort of touched on the when then, but can we talk okay. a bit about when you would uh, reach for the ultrasound, when uh, ultrasound versus MRI, etc. Okay. Differential diagnosis um, and you suspect that the tissue might be at play, then the MRI allows you to look at the other tissue. Um, I'm not an ultrasonographer. I'm not trained in ultrasound in any way, shape or form other than um, quite a lot of experience with UTC scans. Um, so I wouldn't be happy differentiating some of the joint disorders from the tendon, but my clinical should have done that anyway. So if I really thought it was posterior ankle joint, um, I would be then considering an MRI at that stage just to sort of confirm it in. Um, obviously, in our trigonum, we didn't talk about posterior impingement. We'd normally just do a, a, a um, passive heel flick. So you'd force them into a plantar flex position to compress the posterior of the ankle joint. And we've had it a couple of times with some um, elite athletes where they've been told they've got a in, uh, Achilles tendon disorder. Um, can you do a scan, Seth, please? And you scan them and go... Yeah, where, whereabouts is sore after you've just done the scan because you've been asked to scan them? And I say sort of there. And say, so when, when's it hurt? And and so it hurts when I point my toes. And it's like, well, that's not your Achilles. There's no load on it when you do that. It shouldn't hurt or wouldn't normally hurt anyway. And then when you do a passive test and actually force them into plantar flexion, you reproduce that pain and, and then you very much go, is that the pain spot? And push deeper around the posterior of the ankle and normally reproduce it as well. So they're the other bits just to bear in mind. If you then imaging, ultrasound is, I think, the best because it allows you to identify the collagen tissue itself and see what the structure is like. Um, given the choice, my bias is ultrasound tissue characterization. I'm not sponsored by them. I don't receive any money from them. Um, but <laughs> the actual technique itself is fantastic for allowing us to examine the tendon and quantify the tendon structure. And obviously, over the last few years at Leicester, we've done quite a lot of work with it. We've got uh, quite a few studies this year in the tendon conference coming up using UTC as well. So um, it allows lots to be monitored, acute and chronic loading, um, as well as their treatments, um, your intervention studies. Um, so, yeah, we'll watch this space. We'll have a few bits coming, but the intervention study is still a bit of time away in terms of showing what happens to tendons. But we'll hopefully get there. So, yeah, so UTC, ideally, MRI to differentiate, but ultrasound, if you can get hold of it, um, especially if you think there's a tear. Great. Sorry, Craig, you look like you were going to say yeah, something. I, I am. I'm just sorry. I'm just, <laughs> no, no, Karen, I've got a question. There's a question come in relevant to that, but I'm just trying to, um, let me just share it, Seth, so you can read it. Yeah, um, I've just seen it. It's long, isn't it? Yeah, from Gareth, but, it, but it's relevant. I don't know. Can you see the qu the question from Gareth Milne there, Seth? So, oh, so I, yeah. So I'm rather me read it. Like, it's been 
Yeah, so um, Gareth sort of says um, we should be maybe cautious when we're looking at tendon imaging and relating to the presenting problem uh, because we know that there's a bit of a mismatch um, between imaging um, and um, and symptoms. Interesting. Uh, I'm just going to get up a little slide I've got from a recent talk I did on this exact subject because the imaging is sometimes taken out of context. So. Um, I often use, although it seems to keep going back to the original slide, here we go. So I often use this slide. Um, and what we've got is we've got um, two um, systematic reviews, uh, both published in British Journal of Sports Med. And one shows us that structure is clearly a risk factor for developing tendon symptoms, tendinopathy, um, in the next season in, in elite athletes. And that was um, Sean McAuliffe's. Um, done over in Ireland, but he's now in Aspatar. And the risk ratio was um, 7.3, as you can see up here. So that's the biggest known risk factor for developing Achilles tendinopathy. And that tells us it's clearly important. But on the other hand, then we've also got a systematic review down here by um, Drew et al, showing us that structure doesn't correspond to pain. And people use this to say it's irrelevant, we shouldn't look at it. Well, it's clearly not. It's clearly the best predictor or the, the biggest risk factor we have at the moment. Not necessarily the best predictor, but a big risk factor. Um, and we have to be careful with interpreting this because people are relating previous MRI and ultrasound studies to their symptoms. And the problem with those studies are there. You can't quantify the tendon structure. Now, if you can't quantify the structure, how are you expecting to measure change? How do you confirm you've got exactly the same spot? And there's only UTC that can do that. And there is one UTC study within this uh, particular systematic review, but there's no information about how they quantified the tendon, how they analyzed it within that paper. Um, it's, it's a robust group that do the work in Holland, but they didn't identify how they're using it then. And I think our understanding of UTCs altered a lot. And certainly the work we've been doing has shown that how you analyze it is quite critical. Um, so that's part of it. But then on top of that, there's a recent study that's come out and shown that actually um, structure and function clearly are associated. Structure and pain are not and never would have been. If, if you, uh, The example I use when I teach courses is you trap your thumbnail in a door. You've got a, a big black nail, big blood blister underneath it, and your pain and your structure match up for the first day. Three weeks later, you've still got a black nail. Your structure's knackered. But what's your actual pain? Zero. It's back to normal. Why? Well, your collagen is still bad or keratin, whatever it's made of. You guys can tell me that one. Um, it's still bad, but actually it's a, essentially a case of the biochemicals have altered. And so when we image, what stage are we imaging at? Where's that in relation to tissue healing? And without longitudinal scans of people, we have no bloody idea. So I think we've really misinterpreted scanning and people haven't engaged their brains when they've done scanning in the past to really get to grips with what we're looking at. And when we talk about the tendon remodeling, uh, one of the slides I use is what might happen to the tendon. So our assumption is that the tendon's normally nice and small. So let's say it's like this. And when you get disease, it goes big and fat like this. Okay. So these haven't been altered. These are the same pixel sizes within this. This is how big a diseased tendon will go, this top one here. Okay, and the red bits are degraded area, the tendinopathic section. Um, so that might happen to people and they may get larger. And this is what Jill Cook's work's um, shown with um, some, uh, sorry, Sean Dockin. They've shown the tendons get bigger. And this is where the donut and the hole theory comes from. 
But the problem is not all tendons, when you rehab them, then will shrink back to normal size. Some get bigger, some get smaller. And if you look at the mean outcome, well, the mean doesn't change because some have gone up and some have gone down when we've done our work. And so the means no change, but there's maybe a group that responds by adapting to get bigger. This group now I'm just showing you is so diseased. Actually, they probably just need to develop new healthy tissue around it. But this group here might recover and that might repair and it might shrink back. So I think we need to consider things in a lot more detail um, would basically be my advice at the moment. We, we don't have definitive knowledge on it. Um, so, yeah, is that all right? <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, Seth, we've had a question um, put in, which is good timing, really, from Priya. And she was asking about the uh, um, about managing load as part of the treatment. Um, and, and one of the questions that came in beforehand was, was about, you know, how do we manage tendinopathy? And, and clearly anyone who's been reading anything recently knows that, that rest is the enemy and, and load, the right kind of load is king. Can, we, can, you, can you run us through load management and what that really means? So load, you know, load and tissue capacity and, and by all means, feel free to sort of break off and, and talk separately about mid portion and insertion if, if it's appropriate to do so. Yeah, I think you can probably lump them both together. Um, I'm just getting up a little slide again just to help with it. I think we've got to understand what we mean by load as well um, when it comes to, to tendons. And the Achilles, the, the data out there at the moment, particularly from Rich Willie um, that he's doing in the States um, with runners and um, their inverse dynamic calculations are suggesting loads of around four to 5,000 newtons um, intratendon force um, it's also been measured with indwelling force gauges in the past by Comey, but the studies are relatively small. And there may be some problems with some of the um, inverse dynamics we appreciate, but many studies are now showing this type of force. Now, that happens every single step during running. And we're talking really that Achilles problems are predominantly endurance runners. So that's why I'd use this data. So if it's six times body weight, that's a lot of load if we do a bit of maths. And I know you've seen the sort of slide before, but we have to understand what this relates to. Uh, a steady run, 50 minutes, slow cadence, 150 steps, okay? So more if the cadence is higher, equates to an accumulative force of around 1.7 million kilos per leg for the given distance, 10K. Um, so once we start to understand that load, we can start to think, well, the tendon does normally withstand huge loads. Therefore, we've got to rehabilitate it to withstand those loads. And patients, they grasp that. And often physios, particularly in the past, have used crappy exercises like TheraBand exercises for the calf to strengthen it. So you sit on a bed, do some TheraBand exercises. It's not going to do anything. They have to be weight-bearing from day one, shifting their body mass up and down. And if they're lifting their body mass, they're probably getting somewhere between two to four times body weight through the Achilles tendon itself according to some data that's out there at the moment, um, which is the slide before here. So this is basically doing exactly that in unweighted individuals, looking at concentric and eccentric loads by Jonathan Reese. And basically there's a group of individuals that seems to have low load, about twice body weight, this is in those individuals, and a group that has high load for a given task, um, just going up and down as a heel raise. Um, so this will equate to about four times body weight for a simple heel raise, intratendon force. Um, so pretty big loads, small study, got some potential flaws, obviously, but it supports the data. Craig? Actually, Seth, can I just interrupt you there? Just, just 
just sidetracking a little bit, just looking at that graph, and I, I've I often talk about there. There was I think the, I can't remember the authors, but they looked at the um, length of the calcaneus. So they're looking at the lever arm of the Achilles insertion to the ankle joint, but yeah. the, that lever arm varied by like a, uh, over a centimeter. So would could that account for the differences in that graph? Yeah, I mean the difference in this graph is biomechanics somewhere. Yeah. So it's either lever differences or, or it's yeah. the case of neuromuscular differences. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, because you, you um, could speculate you could speculate those with the longer calcaneus, the longer lever arm, have massively less loads to achieve yeah. the same action. So they're not they're at less risk for an Achilles problem, and the, well, and the shorter. Yeah. Now I used to think it was less risk, but I'm not sure now because yeah. obviously if they've got less load, they're accustomed to less load, yeah. and that's okay. fine. If they've got high load, they're accustomed to high load. They should be because I used to think exactly the same thing and think, oh, this is this is key. If we can identify these groups, we can go on and look at them. But I, I think with all risk factors for Achilles tendinopathy, what it comes down to is actually training load. So Tim Gabbert's research data yeah. looking at acute chronic loads, the risk factors there, if they increase their acute chronic ratio excessively then basically they're more likely to break down if they've got the known risk factor, more stress, less stress, weak calf muscle, pronated foot, whatever we want to talk about. So risk factors themselves will never predict an injury because you need to increase the stress on it. So if I take this diseased um, mid portion, like I showed you just now with the the bad tendon, if their training load stays the same, they're never going to get a sore tendon. And that's why we find abnormalities in healthy people they don't do enough to make the tendon undergo extensive loads and they're never going to make it sore. But if we took those same individuals and said, right, you're going to run a marathon next year. We're putting you all on the same training program. What would really happen then? And I, I think honestly, we'd start to see a lot more breakdown that way. Um, and, and ethically we could potentially do that study, but we need a big cohort of runners to actually make it work. Um, yeah, but I think it also complicating that is you, you, the assumption is those with a, a shorter calcaneus, the calf muscles have to work harder. But yeah. in reality, they are actually more economical as runners because of the energy return issue. So, so yeah, the exactly. the, hypo, the hypothetical issue is not matched by the actual evidence in the reality because of the whole issue of energy return in those people. And then adding in the the workload ratios like you're talking about, yeah, it's. Yeah, and the workload's obviously huge that the calf's doing because if the Achilles is withstanding these loads, then the calf's having to generate forces to shock absorb that. And this is, again, where our work's sort of of interest, I think, where we've sort of shown that basically, um, it's saying on the wrong slides for some silly reason, so sorry to zoom through like this, but if you look at the muscle function and talk about sort of the different muscles, so this is the first mention of soleasy, and I just want that registered. Um, 33 minutes who, who, had, yeah. who, who had the sweepstakes for uh, 33 minutes <laughs> I, will, I will i will i will note i will notify the winner accordingly thank you <laughs> so the layers is obviously pretty damn big when we look at sort of simple cross-sectional area and by itself for vertical force it's the most important lower limb muscle um generates the majority of the force and when we look at if we believe in some of this rectified emg data to body weight percentages then we're talking around seven to eight times body weight uh, by soleus by itself gastroc being sort of three times and that's pretty much for most run speeds so it, it's producing big forces and that's why the achilles can withstand big forces and this is why we think strength is of critical nature 
to Achilles tendinopathy that if the muscle functions well, it shock absorbs, protects the Achilles. If it doesn't function well, then actually the tendon ends up absorbing more energy. In this case, that's hysteresis. Um, and you guys know hysteresis far better than most physios do as well. So, and we're doing a study at the moment that's looking at this. So we've just done 5K runs using thermal imaging, looking at how the Achilles um, surface, the skin, warms up as a consequence. Um, it's, it's in for the tendon conference. It's been accepted for it. But the data we've got at the moment is really only healthy controls. Um, we've got about five injured folk, and we're trying to see if the injured folk are different to healthy controls. And we're collecting a load of um, run data as well, using run scribes to look at the actual loads um, through the limb during the run, and then trying to sort of look back at um, sort of how it equates to tendon temperature changes. But we think that the temperature changes are critical. Um, and obviously, when we look at the structure of the Achilles, it's a complex bloody thing anyway. And we've got anatomical variants within it. So this is Adama's work. It's lovely paper. The, the green bit is the soleus, and you can see how it rotates towards the insertion down here at the bottom, this being the medial aspect and this the lateral aspect. Um, and there's more extreme rotation types. So it may be that this type get more stress on the soleus, particularly linked to pronation. Um, they followed up with a later study and actually looked at using these anatomical uh, dissections and doing a, a normal degree of pronation. I think it was about five degrees at the subtalar joint. And they found that that was creating micro failure of the soleus fascicles in this severely rotated form, um, suggesting that actually um, soleus has an important role in anti-pronation or supination forces. In this instance. Yeah. <laughs> now, the, the reason I laughed momentarily there, the CF yeah. is, we, we've done previous Podchat lives talking about Mert Root and Root Theory and all this sort of stuff. One thing that Mert Root said, I think 1970-something, was that they said the soleus is the most powerful supinator of the foot. And when Got you used to be. That, I thought, well, yeah, it looks, yeah I mean, I, I've, I've long believed that as well. And, and yeah. it's just lever angle. Just, I mean, look at the lever on that. It's coming yeah. from this side right the way across. And that's yeah. not the most rotated image I'm showing you either. Um, it's actually got the most rotator going off the side. So you, I, I'm sure he's right. <laughs> yeah. No, I just had a wee laugh when you said that. I thought, oh, we, we've been begging him for a while. But yeah, there are quite a few things he got right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, often when we talk about tip post, I, I talk about rehabbing soleus particularly to control the foot because it's got to be the more powerful of the two muscles. Yeah. And then, I think sort of tip post has a obvious role and a function that mm. maybe Soleus also can help protect it and the two yeah. go hand in hand. Oh, but, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I sidetracked to Soleus, sorry. It was inevitable. It, it was always going to happen. Um, yeah. Actually, just if we've got time at the Oh, sorry, Craig, go on. I was going to say, Bruce has just put in a question that we could probably just stick in now while we, while we get to it, if that's okay. But Bruce has just pretty much asked about ankle joint range of motion. You know, if the ankle joint range of motion is decreased, would, wouldn't that increase the load of the Achilles would heal off? Yeah, the assumption being it would. Um, but obviously the person could uh, modify the rest of the, the chain to compensate, and that yeah. may happen. Um, we know reduced dorsiflexion is a risk factor, okay? There's uh, numerous studies that have looked at it. Um, problem with a lot of the studies is they measure dorsiflexion range in a whole variety of positions, some weight-bearing, some non-weight-bearing, some with the knee straight, some with the knee bent, but they all seem to show a similar risk. Um, so it does seem to be there. 
my, my problem I have is Kaufman's, the original paper, um, late 90s, I think it's 97 or something off the top of my head. And um, they also identified increased dorsiflexion as a risk factor. But it's not in the conclusion or the abstract, even though it's clearly mm-hmm. in the table. And right. as a risk, as a odds ratio, I think the increased dorsiflexion was about 3.6. The um, reduced dorsiflexion was about 4.2. Very similar. So basically any alteration in the range of the ankle joints movement seems to potentially increase the risk of getting an Achilles problem. And it may be that you can compensate either way, that if you're weak, let's say weak being my bias, you could compensate by increasing the range of movement to accelerate over a longer period. But in other people, they'll reduce dorsiflexion because of a lack of plantar flexor power. It increases your lever arm and gives you more propulsion. And this has been shown um, by uh, Mueller in um, elderly people as one of the developments that occur as well. So it, it's sort of, yeah, but I'm making it fit sort of my narrative as well, uh, which is about the car. Um, and obviously there could be a previous ankle injury that's reduced range of movement, but we can't always change it in some individuals. So that's when orthoses may come in to actually try and compensate and take a bit of load away. Um, so short term, no problem with getting heel raises in. Um, and we were discussing earlier, looking at sort of orthoses um, for, for those that may have pain with um, doing like a heel to wall test or something similar, um, where they're then corrected when you put the ankle into neutral. And that's probably got a good place to play, to be honest with you, right? And that might be that they have that extreme rotation, therefore get more stress in that position. And actually, they benefit from the intervention of an orthosis in the short term. And the first thing we're after with management is pain control. If we can get the person to control their pain and understand what's loading it, or sorry, causing the pain, then we're halfway there. So whether that's orthosis, whether it's load management, um, normally I go with load management because loads the trigger in most instances. If it's not, and it's just come out of nowhere, I'd always question what's gone on. Um, and then we can look at anything else as well. Yeah, but some, some of that, especially what you're talking about, the soleus might explain that anecdote of mine that I talked yeah. about before we started. And just, <laughs> but if I just, if I just repeat it again, but effectively yeah. my, my bout of Achilles a couple of years ago, when I everted and pronated my foot and dorsiflexed, it hurt. When I supinated my foot and dorsiflexed, it was much less painful. And, and so my, my, my question was, you know, is there a mechanism there? And I think some of what you've been talking about goes a long way to was explaining that. Yeah, yeah I, I think so. And I mean, part of our, again, the, the PhD data, why we wanted a UTC scanner was to actually look at which section of the, the tendon um, was problematic. And the research at the moment, if it um, is going to play ball with me on this slide, suggests that it's this area, according um, to Consul's work, that may link to the, the areas of soleus involvement. Um, so there is a strong suggestion that actually the site of tendinopathy is mostly potentially medial fascicles or the anterior fascicles. And certainly all the guys like Lorenzo and, and Jared, the UTC over here in the UK, are all seeing the majority of the tendinopa- uh, tendinopathic zones being the anterior section of the tendon. We do see posterior tendinopathy, but it's predominantly the anterior that we see um, in our clinics. So again, we, we think it sort of matches up to these fascicles. And this was a, actually a study I was going to do at the university as part of my PhD. And then during the PhD, we thought it was going to take too much time, cut it out. And then somebody published it anyway, thankfully. So it saved <laughs> me a lot of bellyache chopping up uh, bodies. So um, I was quite thankful. <laughs> mm. 
Okay, well, um, so, so Seth, if if we've got time at the end, we, I might uh, remind me to ask you what what your Soleus rehab looks like because we've clearly talked about yeah. how important it is, and there may be some people watching who who wouldn't have an eye, you know, wouldn't would, would want a bit more info on that. So we'll put that towards the end because there's there's a few things we definitely want to get to first. The first one is isometrics. You and I have, have spoken about this before, and I know I, I know your thoughts on it. But some time ago, a paper was published that looked at about eight people, nine people, whatever it was. And it was in the patella tendon and it showed uh, six, sorry, it begs pardon, uh, <laughs> six people. It was in the patella tendon and it showed that isometrics were, were had a positive effect on pain. And somewhere along the line, it snowballed out of control. And suddenly, regardless of the tendon, isometrics were king in the initial stages for pain. And I know I've seen your your poster, your data from South Africa, yeah. uh, you've got data to, to contradict that as well. Did you mind just yeah. just letting people listening know where we stand on isometrics for pain at the moment? Yeah. So, so the first paper, as you rightly said, was six, six people showed a fantastic reduction in pain from seven out of 10 on a numerical rating scale during a single um, leg decline squat, um, which is a very provocative test um, for patella tendons. Um, and the isotonic um, work that was done with these individuals didn't show any pain benefit. It was a crossover study, um, and it also involved some brain scanning as well um, using uh, transcranial electrical stim, which is really interesting and, and novel. Um, but it was patella tendons, and uh, yeah, the work was quickly extrapolated to all other tendons, as you said, um, without data. Um, so. We'd started using it in the clinic, thought it was great, then started to find it didn't seem to work for everyone, um, which is what was suggested from the original preliminary data. And so we set about doing a study to look at it. Um, the study involves um, Christian Thorberg, Thomas Bandholm, and Michael Rathliff to try and ensure that we've got a robust methodology. It's been submitted. It's just had its second review, and we're just about to resubmit it with the revisions now. So I'm hoping it'll be accepted and published soon. It's been one of those challenges to get it published, to be quite honest. Um, we looked at 16 individuals with Achilles tendinopathy, um, all diagnosed on a clinical examination, including UTC scans. Um, they're all runners. Um, and because we don't have such a lovely provocative task, uh, task like the single decline squat is for the patella, we used a combination of functional tasks, um, which is actually part of your visa A. So we used double bilateral um, heel raises, 10 of them. If they were painful, we graded how painful it was during it and stopped at that point and recorded what number. If they passed that and they got no pain, we did 10 single leg heel raises. If they passed that um, mm -hmm. without pain, they went on to do 10 single leg hops. Um, in position at that stage it was considered um, from our ethics committee that it was not useful or not uh, ethical um, to then submit the patients to further vigorous testing to try and induce um, symptoms like running and with runners one of the downsides is that often if they're not run the day before some of these tasks can be quite okay our average visa a score in these individuals was about 70 i think it's 69 point something so a typical population you'd see in the clinic um, and only nine of the 16 had pain during that series of functional tasks. Um, so um, what we did with all 16 of them, though, was measure strength, like I've done for my previous work, using isokinetic dynamometry and pressure sensitivity using a, a von Frey's device, a, a, like an alpha, um on their most sore point on their Achilles tendon. We did 
the typical isometrics, five lots of 45 second holds at 70% rep max in slight plantar flexion, five degrees or so. And then we um, reanalyze their functional pain score on that test that they've done previously. And also um, the pain sensitivity and the strength. And some patients worsened on the functional pain score. They went from a seven out of 10 to a 10 out of 10. We were unable to um, redo the same test because the pain was that much worse. Um, And some patients got some benefit. There's a very varied response, basically. But the benefit they had in numerical rating scale was only one point out of 10, which we don't have a minimal clinically important difference for um, tendinopathy patients, but for other lower limb disorders, it's considered two points. So they didn't exceed uh, previously published minimal clinically important difference. Um, When we looked at the data for the strength, it didn't exceed the MCDs, um, so the minimal clinical difference, um, so the measurement error that we previously calculated and published for that device. Um, and the von Fraze hasn't got any um, MDCs or MCIDs, um, so we don't know what it was. But again, some patients got sort of more sensitive, some got less sensitive. Um, it was a very varied response, but the net effect was nothing. There's no statistical difference on any of the tests. Um, so on a bigger cohort, um, we didn't find a, a decent change. There's been further studies on the patella. Um, in total, there's about 16 people that have undergone isometric testing in published data that I know of at the moment. Um, and they all report better benefit. But the second paper using 10 didn't show such a big, profound difference as before. And I think we've got to be very careful with research, that research is replicated by other groups outside of the group that first comes up with it and um, in other areas, and we don't extrapolate data out from one zone to another. The patella tendon, when you get tendinopathy, um, gets stiffer. The Achilles tendon, when you get tendinopathy, becomes more pliable. Okay, so the tendons respond differently. They're, they're different entities when you get tendinopathy. And why would we expect the same intervention to work? There's no panacea for anything. There's no silver bullet that cures all tendons or anything else. And we did this with the eccentrics years ago. We found eccentrics didn't work to as good as we maybe thought they did. Um, well, let's not do it with isometrics. Let's get the data first and let's be sure before we start rolling it out to every bugger in the world. <laughs> You've um, preempted the next question, which is about, which was word for word, are eccentrics the panacea? I think you've just answered that. I, I, honestly don't think it matters what type of strength training we use this is for long-term outcomes so not anti-isometrics long-term but for immediate relief i don't think it works for the achilles at this moment in time um i'll come back to that in a minute actually um so yeah it's a case of we can use any loading to strengthen them up i think the critical thing to change for patients is load management and the strength of the calf because uh, i think that by improving the resilience of the calf muscles you can shock absorb and protect the Achilles during locomotion. And I think that's the key thing you see. We do the hysteresis. We've published a paper suggesting a a heat shock protein involvement and stuff, which has already been published, but we tried to tie it into the Achilles and neuromuscular function. That's where I sit at the moment. It's biased. It it has flaws, but we're trying to actually prove that or disprove it at the moment by testing it using thermal imaging. Um, Can I just ask, Seth, the the, the absolute strength of the soleus gastroc, is that somewhat protective of the Achilles or is the process of trying to strengthen those muscles helping the, the Achilles tendon develop yeah. its 
capacity. I, yeah. like I've, I've never quite quite got that. <laughs> it's both. I honestly think it's both. So, so by doing the loading, you're going to alter the material properties of the tendon and the structure. But the structure's slow, and the, the responses clinically can be quite fast. And one of my arguments when it comes to the muscle is the muscle controls the tendon stiffness. Mm. Now, tendon stiffness is the critical bit for, for running. We want a stiff tendon. So if the muscle's functioning well, it controls that. If it doesn't function well, it creates a less stiff muscle, sorry, less stiff tendon, and you're suddenly increasing the energy absorption and dissipation as heat. Um, and like I said, we know that's part of the problem based on the chemical process that occurs in tendinopathy. So I think we're trying to change both. And we're just in the process of setting up a study looking at this with Lorenzo uh, Maskey down in London um, to hopefully look at material properties and some structure um, and see. Sure. Because the reason I ask it, I, I get nothing to do with Achilles, but I was just had a presentation to give on posterior tibial tendinopathy. So I just did a Google search just to see what was out there. And almost all the lay websites talked about strengthening the posterior tibial muscle as the key strategy for managing posterior tibial tendinopathy. I thought, well, you've got a tendon that's sore here. You've got a muscle here. How's making that stronger going to, unless the strength, the, unless the activity of strengthening actually helps the load capacity in the tendon. I think there's that, but from the Achilles perspective, what yeah. we've shown in um, our data is we get these oscillations where when the muscle's eccentrically lengthening, you get in a, a shake in the muscle, like a fasciculation during the isokinetic dynamometry. And we don't see it in the healthy individuals. And, and previous oh, people okay. like Jonathan, Jonathan Reese um, and Alex Grigg have identified this in the Achilles as well, but they've always termed it as a, they called it a tendon oscillation or force frequency vibrations. It gets very complex understanding what the hell that means. Um, took me a long time, but basically they're describing the same thing. The tendon shaking, well, the tendon can't shake itself. It shakes because the muscle's not doing something. And these vibrations are about eight hertz. And um, it was one of these sort of fortuitous conversations with one of the profs at the uni. He's, he's like, oh, we used to research this all, all the time years ago. It's um, fast uh, motor units. They, they vibrate to eight uh, megahertz uh, or eight hertz. Um, and if, essentially, that's what you're showing. It's the fast motor units aren't controlling the, the movement correctly. And they, Jonathan and, and Greg, used to think that was why the eccentric rehab worked, because you got more of these vibrations and it stimulates tendon repair. I think it's why you actually get the problem in the first place. It's more load on the tendon and that causes a degradation. And the rehab actually smooths out that oscillation. So basically, instead of stopping and starting like this all the way through, which is what the fasciculations are, the tendon would get mini stretch shorten cycles. And I think you smooth it out so you get one smooth contraction, one smooth stretch shorten cycle, rather than multiple for every single step. Sure, um, that makes sense. That's interesting. Theory. And we need to, if you get loners or if you want to do the study with it, we just need some force plates to measure this and prove it afterwards. Um, that's where we're at at the minute. And unfortunately, we don't have the research funds. <laughs> you got any more questions, Ian? I have, I have. So, um, well, uh, pretty much uh, the last one we've got on the list before we then possibly get to Salas Rehab and, and, and Plantaris. Um, other modalities, other treatment, we've talked about sort of someone coming in, the history, the physical, the possible imaging, the, we've talked about strength, we talked about, you know, load management, tissue yeah. capacity. 
where, if anywhere, do the other modalities fit in for you? The big ones that, that, that we often see mentioned, uh, injection therapy, uh, whether that be high volume corticosteroid, PRP, yeah. uh, and, and of course, shockwave therapy. Uh, yeah. where, when and where do they fit for you, if, if anywhere? Um, not, not much is the easy answer. <laughs> the, the first thing I'd come back to is actually the biggest modality I'd use is, unfortunately, the biopsychosocial approach. A lot of these patients are fearful. They're worried about what the pain means, what's going to happen to them and the risk of rupture. So the biggest part is education about what's wrong, why it's happened and how to resolve the problem. And imaging can be useful to sort of help them understand that it's not that bad, actually. They've got quite a minor issue. Um, and this will say, oh, they're not going to rupture it. There's plenty of healthy tissue there. So that's my critical bit first and foremost and will be used with everyone. Then when it comes to the adjuncts, most people that use the adjuncts will talk about using them as a window of opportunity to allow loading. So um, people like Dylan Morrissey down in uh, Queen Mary Uni, um, they've done quite a bit of research on shockwave and high volume. And, and Dylan will normally call it this um, ticket to successful rehab or ticket rehab where you do three weeks loading if you can't load them because of the pain then you use shockwave therapy if they still can't load after three weeks further you shockwave them again same process three weeks later shockwave if they're still failing i.e you can't load them then you move on to doing a high volume injection okay and if that fails then it goes on to surgery which i, I think is not a bad plan the, the thing for me, though, is with the patients I see, and I see all sorts, I see local Joe blogs from my village or small town where I work at home. Um, I see people then travel from further afield that have had often other techniques done, including plantaris excision and stuff. And time and time again, they just never understood what's wrong. As soon as you get that grasp of what's wrong, you can successfully get them to load without needing the adjuncts to allow the load in. And if you do the interventions and abolish the pain, like the shock wave, which will probably um, kill the nerve vessels as far as we understand at the moment and does work for pain and the high volume clearly does as well. But if you do those, you've still got your rehab to do. So they're only allowing you to do your rehab. Um, so I'm not, I don't find them important or necessary in my clinical work to do is the easy answer. Um, it might be the case for gluteal tendinopathy. Um, that can be a bit more of a struggle. And I think shockwave has a place there. Um, and Paul Kerwin in um, Ireland's doing some good work looking at that at the moment and finding good results. And uh, he's a good solid researcher. So I trust his opinion on that. Um, but yeah, when it comes to the Achilles, I, I don't use other interventions at all. I don't have them at my disposal. So equally, I use the tools I have. And loading is obviously my sort of thing. But I can access injections. I can access shockwave from various other folk. Um, but I don't, yeah, I don't think they're necessary and I'm still not yet convinced about the, the research for, um, shockwave for, for mid portion, the insertion a little bit different possibly, particularly if there's a big exostosis within the tendon or, or, or little loss there, then, um, it may be useful, but again, they've probably had it for a long time. If we can reduce the loading and I would, um, often be using a heel raise to do so, then absolutely fine. Um, and I just manage them as a normal uh, would be my tact. Um, the problem you get is when you've got an elite athlete or somebody who wants a quick fix or not, not necessarily saying they want a quick fix, but that's what they want. They want to get better and get back playing. And the pressure comes on to the, the physician, the physio, the, the podiatrist, you're ever seeing them. And so a lot of these things then get added in at that stage. I think um, if you can actually get them on board and then realize it's going to take time, I think you can successfully rehab them without all that.
So I don't, I think they're there, they're an option. I don't use them in my clinical work. I think the biggest thing is about getting the patient on board and understanding it. So biopsychosocial, it's all that bit, sort that out and generally pretty decent. You got anything more, any more questions in? Okay, Seth, I think we've lost Ian. You think he's frozen? Are you back in? <laughs> he has, answered. Yeah, it's a yeah. good pose for him. That. Well, um, maybe now's a good time just to throw in the question. We just lost you there for a minute, Ian. Um, <laughs> just before um, we started, the only other thing was plant. Oh, plantaris. Yeah. Plantaris. Yeah. Plantaris. So, hell of a lot of work being published on plantaris. Um, a lot of it's come from Lorenzo Maschi, uh, Hakan Alfredson. Um, great work. Um, some really pioneering studies coming on the biomechanics. Um, so Lorenzo with, uh, I'm just trying to remember her name now. Oh, it's gone out of my head. Uh, one of the other ladies down in, um, works at the Fortius Clinic as well. They've done some lovely dissections, um, looking at dissecting the plantaris out and the Achilles in fresh um, cadaveric legs. And they can clearly show that during plantar flexion and dorsiflexion, and this might tie in with your um, experience, Craig, of your own problem as well. Yeah. In plantar flexion and dorsiflexion positions, the plantaris seems to compress against the Achilles tendon. Um, and the hypothesis is that compression it leads to degradation of the medial section of the Achilles tendon where the two contact and causes the, the tendinopathy of the Achilles in some instances. And so the, the treatment is then to remove the plantaris. Um, obviously, wherever that plantaris has been in that person, is a, a, there's a huge amount of anatomical variance. It's been like that for their life. Why has it not hurt them five years ago? Why is it hurting now? And why are they having a good day that day and a bad day the next day? So I'd always come back down to the subjective loading components again, try and understand that. And I think you can rehab a lot of these. Um, you've got to remember that the clinics uh, and the data that gets published from Hakan and um, James Calder at Fortius are on tertiary patients they've already had numerous other people see them and so then they're seeing the surgeon who's going to say well you've failed all this let's take you through to surgery and so sometimes we can i think get a bit biased and think they all need surgery they clearly don't they respond to normal interventions but maybe it's a bit more resistant i don't know at the moment um certainly in our hands we seem to get them better um at the moment um the majority of them anyway yeah, just while you were talking then, Seth, I just did a quick search and I could find 22 publications on plantaris and Achilles since 2011. So it's yeah. like, but it, it's interesting. That, so it's a lot of work, but mm. at the same time, it's never talked about much. Uh, yeah, I, I think it is. So at the tendon conferences, it's always mentioned. Okay. Uh, yeah. and there's, um, ESCA um, earlier in the year, and there's a lovely talk on it as well there. Yeah. Um, so it, it is, it depends where you're at. Um, clinically, I don't think it's filtered down that well. Uh, this is one of the interesting things. Like isometrics seems to have gone from a couple of publications to literally everyone's doing it. And then you've got Plantaris, that loads of publications, really good studies, good data, and actually people aren't aware of it. Yeah, well, that, that's again, that's my, my point. There's 23 since 2011, you know, so and one as recently as two weeks ago, yeah. Yeah, uh, and it's cracking stuff. I think it's got a lot of scope, but I, I often ask Hakan and Lorenzo about this when we're at a conference and having a beer. Um, well, could it not just be the soleus fascicles? And it just happens that plantaris is next to it because we're talking the medial section again. And that's why I want to see a study that doesn't remove plantaris. It just did the scraping in the front of the tendon versus um, 
scraping and plantaris removal because my concern is that a degree of these that we think plantaris maybe are just soleus fascicle soleus involvement as opposed to a proper it's getting squashed all the time um and again paul Kerwin, not not to big him up too much but he's done some cracking work he's done a hundred cadaveric legs uh, in um Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland looking at plantaris and they're identifying all of them and a lot of them it's normally invaginated in the paratenum and this is why the old studies thought it didn't exist in the degree of people because it's hidden in the paratenum and in all of our tendons at our cadaveric lab at Leicester it's always there and it's pretty much always in the uh, paratenum so I'm still yet to be convinced it causes that degree of compression and that's the lone trigger so yeah sure yeah we're just about of time but maybe a good point topic to finish on would be obviously the use of photothotics and we did have a bit of a discussion before we came on about this but see my the way i look at it is we have um one uncontrolled study showing it's incredibly effective we have one one very well done controlled study that showed it didn't really help that much at all we could debate the orthotic designs used in that study yeah so the control wasn't maybe totally uh inactive control but again, coming, coming back to my anecdote, um, I have, and I've, I've tried this and a number of people are, are doing this and, and argue quite strongly for it. And these are people whose clinical experience I, I respect, but they often talk about doing the lunch test and yeah. do a lunch test. How, how much does that Achilles hurt? Then put an yeah. orthotic under the foot or put a medial wedge under the foot and do the lunge test again. Does the pain go down? Now, when you do that in people with Achilles, some, some of them, the pain does is less. Some of them yeah. is not. And what they like to suggest is that those whose pain go down when you invert the foot to do a lunge test, they, that's an indication for photothosis. Now, there's no clinical evidence support, no, no research evidence supporting that, except the clinical experience of those people arguing for it. And like I said, I do respect these people and, and like their opinions. So it's an interesting observation. It is consistent with my little anecdote of when I dorsiflexed the inverter, reverted my foot. Um, so it'd be kind of interesting to pursue that. Um, I've added it to my research. Test, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's got it's gone onto my student list for next year. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, I mean, Seth, when you're going to do going to just study on here. Sorry, mate, because now you're sorry, you keep dropping out here. You're going to do a study on heel defenders. Heel defenders. Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah, heel defenders as well. That came through earlier. You have to tweet them later. Um, yeah, just a, a very <laughs> fantastic, humorous heel raise. Um, I, I totally agree with that one. That's what it looks like. Um, we know that reduces a bit of stress on the tendon um, using a heel raise. And um, I think it's good. One of the things I'd bring up, um, Craig, uh, I think if we're looking at trying to do a study looking at orthoses, mm. is the problem is, is that there's a, a time period when you're quite flared up where it will probably have a good impact. So those individuals that did the heel to wall test and get pain. Well, it, it's they're obviously quite sore. That's not that common a finding, to be honest, in Achilles patients. Um, and so it's like, well, okay, they're, they're obviously bad at the time. It's probably going to give them a good way of settling it in the short term. But if you're doing a long-term study at three months, I don't think you then find a difference between the group that didn't have it because sure. it's probably the first four weeks, the first two weeks, where actually go, I can walk further nearly instantly. And that would be great. So I think we've got to be, again, thoughtful about follow-up periods. And this is something that the researchers sometimes just don't seem to engage with. Yeah, no, I think that that's, again, I, in this example, I, I see them as probably very effective short-term, maybe yeah. medium-term load reduction agents. But I think exactly. the crucial yeah. thing... The crucial thing 
Yeah. But the, the crucial thing about orthotics on this issue is, is getting the design features right. Like an arch-supporting type design is not going to affect soleus. Something yeah. on the medial side of the subtalar joint axis, which varies massively, yeah. is going to reduce yeah. the load in soleus. And I think that's where you know, we did uh, a few weeks ago with Simon Spooner, we talked about foot orthotic dosing. And I think that's the key. And if the soleus is a powerful supinator of the foot, it is. That means foot orthoses do have a, a potential role to reduce how hard soleus has to work. As yeah, a short I, I think so. And, and uh, I mean, uh, my eyes were opened. Obviously, I did a course last year with uh, Ian that we both taught for a yeah. two-day course for NHS Trust, and yeah. it was great working with him because it's a case of we suddenly see the overlap between the two areas yeah. and how we can link. And I, I learned a lot um, spending that time with him. And I think there's a huge, huge overlap. Uh, when I was in sports med, we used to have um, Steve Abel, who's uh, a podiatrist okay, yeah. over yeah. in Northampton, yeah. uni. Steve used to be a podiatrist in the clinic and get great results with Achilles stuff as well. Um, so I think there's scope there. I just think we've got to think about the studies when they do it. If you're looking at long-term follow-ups comparing uh, proper orthosis and what we consider a sham one, well, long-term, the symptoms are probably going to improve whatever. Oh, it's that yeah. short-term bit where we match it up to the person that gets benefit with one. And that's a clinical sort of decision-making rule then. And we wouldn't give it to everyone. We'd only give it to a cohort of patients. Well, let's do pragmatic trials that actually target the individuals we should be using these things with instead of just going, everyone with an Achilles problem gets an insult when it might be totally inappropriate for a degree of them. So, yeah. No. Well, thanks. I think, Seth, we've, we've, we've gone over the hour. It's been really good. There's been some really positive comments made in the last five minutes about how well tonight has gone. I did see, have seen and noticed a lot of people join in late. So for those that have joined in late, um, come back in 10 minutes. This video will be ready to watch from the beginning. It will be on YouTube. So thanks again, Seth. Um, Thank you very much. But just before thanks. we finish, I'm going to put a bit of plug in for Ian. For those of you who haven't seen what Ian posted on his Facebook page and on Twitter this morning, um, <laughs> It's, you really like you really like this. You really I like do, this, don't I, you? I did, I did, I did, I did. I did click on the like button. So, so thanks again, everyone. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Ian, and thanks, Seth. Yes, Seth. Thanks, thanks, mate. Thank you very much.